You're listening to a sermon podcast from Agape Baptist Church, recorded live from our Sunday service. Today's Bible reading is taken from the Song of Songs, chapter 4, verses 1 to 7, verse 16, and chapter 5, verses 1 to 2. Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. Your eyes are doves behind your veil. Your hair is like a flock of goats leaping down the slopes of Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of shorn ewes that have come up from the washing, all of which bear twins, and not one among them has lost its young. Your lips are like a scarlet thread, and your mouth is lovely. Your cheeks are like halves of a pomegranate behind your veil. Your neck is like the Tower of David, built in rows of stone. On it hang a thousand shields, all of them shields of warriors. Your breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle that graze among the lilies. Until the day breathes and the shadows flee, I will go away to the mountain of myrrh and the hill of frankincense. You are altogether beautiful, my love. There is no flaw in you. Verse 16. Awake, O north wind, and come, O south wind. Blow upon my garden, let its spices flow. Let my beloved come to his garden and eat his choicest fruits. Chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. I came to my garden, my sister, my bride. I gathered my myrrh with my spice. I ate my honeycomb with my honey. I drank my wine with my milk. Eat, friends, drink, and be drunk with love. I slept, but my heart was awake. A sound, my beloved, is knocking. Open to me, my sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one, for my head is wet with dew, my locks with the drops of the night. This is the word of the Lord. The Lord bless you, church. Can you hear me? Yeah, good, great. The Lord bless you. Those of you who are listening uh, through the live stream and watching us, uh, the Lord bless you and good morning to you. uh, uh, You could see me, I can't see you, but then the Lord bless you anyway, yeah. Uh, this is the last sermon from, this, uh, from season one of this series uh, on the Song of Songs. Uh, we have already, by today, we have completed four chapters. There are eight chapters altogether. And so there's another four chapters to go. And there are four sermons related to those four chapters that we will pick up sometime next year, I think. And then uh, that will complete the entire book. And we would have completed the entire book. I think by now you will know the tone of the, of the book of uh, uh, the, the songs and, uh, and, and what it carries in it. Uh, this morning we are looking at healing for sexual brokenness, okay? And we're looking at primarily at chapter uh, 4. Now I want to start by asking us to imagine together. Imagine a world, imagine sexuality uh, like this in a world where kids can grow up without the fear of sexual abuse. A world where our sons and our daughters don't have access to pornography at all. Where you and I can look at one another and treat one another as brothers and sisters. And then one day marry one in the family of Christ. And after that, that our sexuality is very focused and very directed to that one person and one person only, which is our spouse. It is not scattershot and, and promiscuous. Uh, it's very focused, it's very sweet and safe for that one person. 
And that's the way in which we should experience sexuality. That's how God created us. Uh, that's, that's, that's how He created you. And, and that's what we have been seeing in the Song of Songs. The Song of Songs just gives us this ideal picture. It displays for us the pure kind of intimacy and love, which sometimes is very strange to us because we are so far from it as a result of our own brokenness. Last week we mentioned that the imagery of vineyards and gardens uh, in the songs points us to another garden, the very first garden in the Bible, the Garden of Eden. And then in Genesis chapter 2, God creates the woman and, he, and, and brings her to the man and he looks at her and he breaks up poetically and he sings over her just like the way the husband in the, in the, in the songs sings to his bride. And, and Adam says poetically to his wife, this is at last bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called a woman because she was taken out of a man. And then at the end of Genesis chapter 2, the two become one. And it ends with this beautiful verse that says, they were both naked and were not ashamed. That's garden intimacy at, where they were both naked and without shame. And we wonder sometimes what that feeling is like. Uh, to be completely open and vulnerable to another person and not feel any shame. But the Song of Songs is actually telling us that. It's giving us a sense of that feeling. When you can have sex without shame, you have the Song of Songs types of feeling. The Song of Songs type of experience. And Adam and Eve, they had this, these. And, and so did the husband and the wife here in the songs. They're experiencing the same intense focus, passionate marital erotism. The reality, people, is that the Bible actually tells us a better story of sex than what the world does. It gives us a better, more, a richer, a deeper, a purer, a more wonderful narrative of sex. Sex was God's idea. But here's the problem. The problem is that we can read the Song of Songs and then we can read about this garden imagery and we can even think back about our first parents, Adam and Eve, being naked and without shame and realize that in our own personal experiences and in our own marriage, that is not the case. We often wonder, if you look, if you, when you read the songs, or when you read what happened before sin entered the world in Genesis chapter 2, like we look and we wonder I, and say that, look, I don't feel like, in, when it comes to my sexuality, look, I, I don't feel like I'm in a garden. I feel like I'm in a wilderness. I feel like I'm in a desert. Oftentimes, you know, when, I, when I'm naked, I feel utter shame. I feel exposed. I feel betrayed. I feel broken. I feel like I've never experienced this thing, uh, 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 this, 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 this sex without shame. So, so what, does, what, what do we do with our shame? What does it take to, for us to experience a freedom like this, where there's, there's sex without shame? I think that's a question that we all want answered in our lives. Now listen, people, I don't think that you have to be a Christian or to agree with Christians, uh, with, a, with a Christian sexual ethics to agree that the majority of us 
are probably sexually broken. If I'm, whether you're a Christian or a non-Christian, whether you agree uh, with what the Bible might say about premarital sex or, or, or what, 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 what the Bible might say about pornography, you know that, you know that somehow inside of us, we all know whether we are Christian or not Christian, that sexually we are broken. And no matter what you believe about Jesus, I don't think there's an argument to say that sex is very powerful. And the majority of us in here have experiences, have experienced some sort of sexual brokenness at some level. We have experienced some kind of disappointment when it came to sex. We have experienced betrayal. We have experienced sexual brokenness. We have experienced the weight of sexual sin and guilt. And some of us even experience sexual abuse. There is sexual bro brokenness all around us. It's so common. It's, so, it's, it's just everywhere. Now, what do we do with this brokenness? What do we do with statistics that say that one out of every four women have been sexually abused? And that one out of every six men have been sexually abused? What if, when we think about our past, all that we see are dark clouds of sexual shame? Where do we go with that shame? And what do we do with it? And that's a question that we want answered this morning. Now, most of our story, your story, my story, it's not, that, it's not this well-protected, well-tended garden of sexuality. You know, two people come into a marriage and you just do not know what kind of past they had. You imagine a guy uh, uh, who had been sexually promiscuous all throughout his single life, and then he, he comes together with this girl uh, who has sexual abuse in her past, and the both of them decide to get married. Imagine the kind of problems that they're going to have. Or imagine another guy who is addicted to pornography in his past, and then here's this woman who grew up in a church where they thought that sex was evil and dirty. And imagine them coming together in marriage and the kind of problems that they, they're going to face. Or maybe there's another guy who, who's struggling with same-sex attractions in his past and he's going to marry this girl who, is, who has this overly romantized version of marriage and sex. And imagine them coming together in a marriage these people with this kind of a past and this kind of experiences are hoping that as they come and get married to one another, that their longings, their loneliness, their sins, their issues, that it will be resolved in marriage. But it doesn't. And that's probably most of our stories if we really truly want to be honest with one another. So the question is, what do we do with our shame so that we can have a liberty, a freedom, you know, for sex without shame? And that's what we want to talk about today, and we are looking at chapter 4 today. And I, what I'm going to do is that I'm, going to, I'm just going to run through the chapter quickly and explain it, you know, just a the little bit of nuances here and there with regards to the chapter, and then finally we're going to draw some lessons for ourselves, and we'll start with verse 1. And this is the, the two of them, the husband and wife, they're singing to one another. The man in this case, in this text that we are reading today, actually he sings pretty I mean, he sings most of the time, okay? And what he says is pretty great. Now, let's begin with verse four, uh, chapter 4, verse 1. Behold, you are beautiful, my love. 
Behold, you are beautiful. Your eyes are doves behind your veil. When he says that your eyes are doves, it's almost like saying, I see innocence in your eyes. You know, and, and that there's beauty in her eyes. And there's even a mystery to her eyes because it's behind the veil. And then from the eyes, he moves on to the next part. And he says that your hair is like a flock of goats leaping down the slopes of Gilead. And this is, oh, well, how come she's insulting her? You know, like he's saying that her hair is like the hair of goats. No, he didn't say your hair like the hair of goats. He's saying that your hair are like a flock of goats leaping down the slopes of Gilead. And if you've seen from a distance, goats leaping down, it's kind of like a long flowing thing. So what he's saying is that your hair is black and it's luscious. You know, it's like a flock of goats that are coming down the mountains, just so beautiful, long flowing black hair. And then he moves on and he speaks about her teeth. And the language is a little bit foreign to us, the way that it's being described. But in verse 2, he says, Your teeth are like a flock of shorn ewes that have come up from the washing. Now, what is that? You know, what he's saying is that she got clean, white teeth, which is great. He notices that. And then he talks a little bit more about the teeth in, in the rest of verse and it says, all of which bears twins, and not one among them has lost its young. Basically, he's saying, she has all her teeth. Now, that is a rare thing in that culture because dental health was not very good. So he must have seen that, wow, not one missing. This is amazing. You know, and, and, and it was a noteworthy thing for him. And then verse 3 comes on up to verse, five, or verse 4 and says, your lips are like scarlet thread, red. And your mouth is lovely. Your cheeks are like halves of pomegranate. Very full and nice. Behind your veil. A little bit like my granddaughter. Yeah. And say that your neck is like the, the, the Tower of David built in rows of stone. On it hangs a thousand shields. All of them shields of warriors. She's strong and she's dignified. And she's got, you know, it's basically when he says that your neck is like a Tower of David and you say, wow, what long neck must that be? No, but that's not what it is. It is like, what is it? you know, the Tower of David, there's a lot of engravings and, 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 and stuff like that. Basically, she's saying that she got a necklace. And then in verse 5, and beginning from verse 5 right out to verse 7, he, he, he goes down even further and says, Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle, like that graze among the lilies. Until, until the day breathe and the shadows flee, I will go away to the mountains of myrrh and the hills of frankincense. You're altogether beautiful, my love. There is no flaw in you. That's very, very noteworthy, people. We'll come back to that in a while. There is no flaw in you. But he's basically taking an inventory of his bride and just kind of working his way down. Now, people, this is very common, very common in Middle Eastern culture. They would do this at, at, at weddings. In a wedding ceremony, the bride and the groom basically would stand before each other and they would take an index of one another's body and beauty and just uh, speak affirmatively about what they are seeing. Now, I went ahead to count the number of words that he, the words that he uses to describe her breast. Now, how many times does he use the word breast or describe the breast in the entire book? Do you know how many times? 38 times. That's a lot of times. He, he uses the most words to describe that part of a body than any other part of the body. And then there are another 30 words he uses to describe her teeth. 
I don't know why he was so obsessed with, his, with her teeth. I mean, she must have had the most captivating smile. And you know what? I mean, that, that, must, be, that, 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 that must be so beautiful to him. But the breast and the teeth must be the two big things for him. But don't be surprised at these people because the, the Bible does that in other places too. Like in Proverbs chapter 5, it says, Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in, your, in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breast fill you at all times with delight, be intoxicated always in her love. Now, when the scripture talks about these people and talks so vividly and openly about it, you know that sex is God's idea. And so this is a celebration of the woman and her sexuality. In Genesis chapter 1, the Lord God does the same thing. I mean, He, created, he creates everything and He takes an inventory of everything that He has created. And what does He say at the end? He praises it. He says it's all good. And then the culmination, the crescendo, and the climax of God's creation is the man and the woman. And the woman was created last, and God brings her to, the, to Adam. And Adam looks at her and breaks up poetically and sings over her. And again, there's a celebration of, 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 of a beauty and a sexuality. So there is absolutely nothing wrong that a husband here in Songs 4 is doing the same thing. And so, just as an application, guys, husbands, can I suggest to you, why don't you try this tonight? Why don't you uh, try this with your wife, telling her what, the, the, what is beautiful to you about her? Now, please don't go and tell her that your hair is like goat, like a goat's hair, or like, you know, you're in, in a kind of thing. No, you, 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 that, that's not the language that is appropriate for us right now, you know, unless you say that, oh, I want to be, I want to be very scriptural in the way that I describe you. You know, but if Psalms 139 is true that she is beautifully, wonderfully, and fearfully made, then you should tell her specifically what is it that you like about how God made her. You know, you, you, you're, you're, you're praising God's work when you praise your wife and, and her beauty and her body. Now, let me ask you this if you don't do this, if you don't do it to your wife, who would do it? Who else do you expect to do this? This isn't something that we can incorporate into a cell group gathering and ask your cell leader to praise your wife. I mean, it's, it's not appropriate. This responsibility is exclusively yours, husbands. And here's the thing. Sometimes our wives don't think that they are beautiful. And yes, the Bible does warn us in Proverbs 31 that charm is deceitful and beauty is vain. But the Song of Songs also has a praise for, for, for beauty and her, and her body, and you should speak these things to your bride to invite her into intimacy. And look at how he invites her into intimacy, and that comes out uh, in the next few verses. Here it is. Come, and, come with me from Lebanon, my bride. Come with me from Lebanon. Depart from the peak of uh, Ammonah, from the, from, from the, from the peak of Sinner and Hermon, from the dens of lions, from the mountains of the leopards. You have captivated my heart, my sister. When he uses the word my sister, it doesn't mean that the bride was his sister. I say, huh, what is this? You know, no, it's a, it's a way of respecting her, honoring her. You know, like, you know, he's not objectifying her. 
you know, as a sex object. That's what it is. We'll get to that in a little while. My sister, my bride, you have captivated my heart with one glance of your eyes, with one jewel of your, of your necklace. How beautiful is your love, my sister, my bride? How much better is your love than, than wine and the fragrance of your oils than any spice? Your, uh, did I, did I, I, okay, I missed that. Oh no, we are there, yeah. Your lips drip nectar by my bride. Honey and milk are under your tongue. The fragrance of garments is like the fragrance of, of Lebanon. A garden lock is my sister, my bride. A spring locked, a fountain sealed. And then she starts to sing. And she says, let my beloved come to his garden and eat its choicest fruits. And then he says, I come to my garden, my sister, my bride. I gather my myrrh with my spice. I ate my honeycomb. Uh, with my honey, and I drank my, my, my wine with my milk. So the Song of Song is, a, is, is about this celebration of marital intimacy. Sex people is at the center of the Song of Songs. And you, you notice here, that there are two things to notice here, okay, uh, uh, in, in these this, this verses. Number one is that you will notice that this, 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 in all of this description, there's nothing about technique, there's, there's nothing at all, nothing to do with the gymnastics ability, gymnastic ability of this couple or their sexual prowess. All you, all you hear from here is that they're just so in love with one another. And the love between them is what makes this safe and beautiful and passionate. That's what makes it good. You know, in our church, for, for couples who are preparing to get married, we have what we call the PMC, the premarital course. And it kind of, we take, it takes a... Uh, one, one, uh, one couple will, 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 will work with a, with, a, with, a, with a couple that is to be married in this, and it kind of, it's a, it's a great course, you know, There's all, it's always been good. And, and, and the last lesson of the course is on sex. That's, that's just before they get married, we, will have a, we have the last module is on, on sex. And when my wife and I do PMC, which we hardly do these days, I mean, we just did one um, probably last year, I think, and what we do is that we usually will give a, the couple a honeymoon speech. And in the honeymoon speech, we, will, we tell them that basically, that they, we, we, just, we just prepare them beforehand. And we will tell them that basically that they're not going to be very good at it for a start. It's not going to be like in the movies at all. It's going to be a lot of experimenting and discovering of each other in the beginning. But we encourage them, we tell them that what will make it good is your love for one another. It's the covenant, the sense of safety that you feel, the security that comes in the covenant relationship, the beauty, the desire, the affections uh, that, that, that you have for one another. That is what's going to make it sweet and beautiful, pure and holy, you know, in that setting. That's what's going to make it good. So the first thing, you know, that you discover in these descriptions here is that it's nothing about techniques, it's all about love. But the other thing that you'll notice in this section is that there are 20 times one word is repeated. I do not know, uh, I, I, maybe you caught it, maybe you didn't, but 20 times a particular word is repeated and it is the word my. It's over and over and over again. They repeat back and forth. My this and my that and, and they just repeat that. So he will say, I ate my honeycomb with my honey. I came to my garden. Let my beloved come to his garden. And that's just over and over again. And this is the language of mutual possession. This is the language of oneness 
and unity. This is the language of, 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 of intimacy and of sex. It is saying, you are a part of me and I'm going to give my whole self to you and she's going to give her whole self to me. And there's this mutual possession. This is the pleasure and joy of, of, of sex in a marriage, people. In a godly marriage, they truly become one. You never become one any other way. You know, even if you have sex before marriage, you never become one until you have committed to that covenantal, marital, godly relationship. And that is why I think that in chapter 5, the second part of verse 1, that God writes Himself into the song, and this is what uh, chapter 5 verse, uh, verse 1 says in the, in, in the second part. It says, it, it says others. It doesn't say God, it says others. It says and the others are saying this, affirming this, eat friends, drink, and be drunk with love. Now, most biblical scholars uh, believe that this is God writing Himself into the song and giving approval at the center of the book, the very climax of the book, giving His approval to this marital love. The only kind of of, 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 of a man-woman relationship in a bedroom that God actually sanctions and approves is this one, the marital covenantal love. Now, if it, now, even if it's not directly God singing here, God, of course, inspired the book of Song of Songs. So directly or indirectly, this is God. God is approving their passionate love, their intimacy. Now, having said all of that, people, let me draw out three things for you that I believe can bring healing to a sexual brokenness based on this text. Three truths, three realities that we see in our text that can bring about sexual healing. Now let me tell you that sexual healing is not overnight. It's not something that happens just because you're hearing this today. But if you were to take these three things into the depth of your heart, you are allowing the Holy Spirit to begin a process to move you towards more and more sexual wholeness and sexual healing. And here are the three things. Number one, the first of this is this, is right theology. That's how we ought to always begin. People, there's been a lot of bad teaching on sex, especially in church. And a huge part to our sexual brokenness is because of that. Some of us grew up, I know that I did, you know, in my, you know, as, as I, I grew up with very bad teaching on sex in church. I only came to realize that it was bad, bad much later in my life. And so the right theology, the right teaching about God and about what God says about sexual intimacy is the first step towards your healing. Please know that sex was actually God's idea. It's not the world's idea. It's the Lord God who created all things, and He created all things physical as well as spiritual, and all things therefore matter, all things in the body that He created. He called them good. So it is God who created the nerve endings and the sexual desires that we have, it is He who created parts of the body just for pleasure, not, not, not only for procreation. All those things were His ideas. 
He designed it, he created it, he executed them perfectly. And then at the end of it all, he looked back and he applauded it and said, yeah, this is good. Therefore, people, the body matters. The idea that the body is less spiritual than our soul or our spirit is not right theology. You look at Jesus, he came in human form, he died, he rose again in the body and not just in the spirit. So the body matters as much as the soul and the spirit. And so what we do with our body is very important. It is not any less important than what we do with our soul of our spirit or our hearts. So as much as you would, you would want to read ACAD every day and open the Bible daily to strengthen your spirit and strengthen your soul, you should also exercise daily. You should also eat wisely and sleep sufficiently to care for and strengthen your body. It is equally important. And those of us who are crazy about exercise and about food and nutrition and sleep should also pay equal attention to opening the Word every day and take care of our spirit and our souls. There must be that balance. Right theology would say the body is good. God created it. Sex is good. It was His idea. And here, is, and here in verse 1 of chapter 5, the Lord applauds it. That's the beginning, having the right theology. It's the step that begins to bring about your healing. It breaks certain things in your mind and in your heart, and it gives you a certain freedom. The second thing is this, people. It is worship. And we look at that in verse 9. I love this verse. You have captivated my heart, my sister, my bride. You have captivated my heart. It's a term of endearment here he's using. I love this phrase, captivated my heart. When I looked at it in the Hebrew, it is actually not three words, but one word. It's not even a word, like it's the word heart, but it is in a verb form. Like he's basically saying, my heart, oh my heart. Like he's saying, it's correct here, it's like you captured my heart. Like you've stolen my heart. Like you have my heart. And that's what he's saying. He's doting on her. He's in awe of her. He cannot believe how beautiful she is. He's so captivated by her, and so he breaks out singing. You see, people, it's not that he's just interested in her body. This, is not, this isn't just a two-dimensional woman on a computer screen for him. This is his bride, his beloved. He loves her. He loves her totally. This isn't just about some selfish pleasure, like he's looking at her sexually and just lustfully. This is his bride. He, 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 he loves all of her. He's captivated by her. It's not just his mind playing on him. It is mind, his heart, his everything. You know, and, and, and there, 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 there's just a deep, deep love for her. It's a razor beam of passion and focus for him towards her. You see, people, the problem that we have as broken people is this, that in our minds, we tend to objectify one another. Those of, we guys, men, we objectify women, and you know that you do that often. Like we turn them into bodies of pleasure, like as though they are, they are not human, you know? They are just a body for pleasure. And women objectify men as well and turn them into objects of opportunity. And we do this for each other. We tend to see each other as sexual objects. 
not really as brothers and sisters, as people. And then we go into marriage and we wonder why we don't seem to be able to give ourselves selflessly to others. Why is it that we are distracted? Why is it that we compare? Why is it that, you know, like, we cannot really say that, you know, I'm yours and you're mine kind of thing. You see, sin has trained us in our relationship to be about, not about the other person, but about us. So the relationship, the marriage, the sex is all about us. But that is not what you see as you read in, this, in, in the songs. You know, when we don't, what we don't realize is that being captivated by your spouse is less to do with your spouse and how beautiful they are or how awesome they are. It has more to do with you. Your focus determines your captivation. So, if you, you know, you, you need to, each of us need to look at our thought life. What are the fantasies that you are entertaining? What are the emotional games do you toy with in, in sex? What is your thought life like when it comes to women who work with you in the office? Or the guy that pays special attention to you at work? You see, all these comparisons with people outside our own spouses affects us in the way that we get captivated by our wives. That's why we are not captivated by our spouse. It is hard to be captivated by your spouse when your attention is diverted elsewhere. But when your focus, your attention, your desire is just for that one person and no one else, it is easy to be captivated by that person. And people, we were made for one man, we were made for one woman, and we were made to be captivated by just that one man and that one woman. Similarly, we were made for just one God. We were made to be captivated by that God and that God alone. That's why worship is one of the antidotes to healing in regard to sexual brokenness. Because much of our sexual brokenness is because we make sex a God and not God, God. Peter Kreeft is a great Catholic philosopher and he said this. He said, sex is like religion. Not only because it's objectively holy, but also because subjectively it's a foretaste of heaven. Now listen, here's what he's saying. He's saying sex is so powerful, it's so powerful that it can become a god to you. That sin can easily distort sex and turn sex into a religion. Turn it into a god. And therefore, Every time somebody clicks on a porn site, they're looking for some good feeling. They're looking for some love. In essence, they're looking for God, but in a very wrong place. In the same way, a girl may look for love in her boyfriend. She so desires his love, but he keeps relentlessly persuading her to have sex with him. And finally, she gives him to him. And when she does, she gives her, her body as a living sacrifice to him because she desires his affection so much. She believes his promise that if only she would do this, she would be loved, she would be accepted. But people, a 23-year-old boyfriend make very bad gods. 
And when you, when you don't, when, when, when she doesn't feel accepted, she ends up feeling rejected. When she doesn't feel loved later on, she feels betrayed and unloved and unsaved. People, it has to do with worship. Guys, we do the same thing. Guys worship sex. You lock onto a pawn site or you try to pick up a girl at a bar or you sleep with your girlfriend or whatever. You are presenting your body as an act of worship and sex has become a god to you. It is worship for us and this happens when we lose our sense of, sense of awe of God. People, if we are not captivated by the one true God, could I have that code up please? If we are not captivated by the one true God, we will be captivated by something that we are worshipping. That is why it's so important that you understand God. Who is God to you? Is God a genie in a bottle that you just rub, you know, and then He comes out and gives you three wishes? Is God a cosmic policeman to you? You know, where you feel like He's chasing after you and see what wrong you have done so that He could catch you and arrest you? and punish you? If that is a God that you are relating to, that's not the biblical God. And no wonder you would have lost your sense of wonder for this amazing God. You would not worship such a God. And so, if you don't understand the love of God, the beauty of God, the bigness of God, the grace of God, then your heart would not be captured by Him. And people, we must be captivated to worship God, and that is the beginning of healing in regard to your own sexual brokenness. When you get that right, you get a lot of things right. Your whole life begins to fall into place when you know how to worship God and God alone. And here's the third thing, and the last one. Grace. In verse 7, he, he says, you are altogether beautiful, my love. There is no flaw in you. Now you suddenly wonder, uh, how can he say that? Because in chapter 1, the woman has confessed that she has flaws, that she is dark. She has, she, she has, she has low self-esteem, she has body image issues. But now he looks at her and he says, no, 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 there is no flaw in you. And then, you know, he has worked his way down from her eyes to her hair, to her teeth, to her lips, to her cheeks, to her neck, down to her breast. Now, if you count the number of body parts that he described, there are altogether seven body parts, and seven in the number of perfection in the Bible. And he's primarily saying, hey, you are perfect. Now, listen, husbands. If your wife is the only one that you actually see, if she's the only one who has your attention, that your eyes and your heart are just focused on her and her and her alone, it will be easy for you to say that she is without flaws because you are not comparing her to anyone. And when you're not comparing your spouse to anyone, to you, she is the best. Now, here's a crazy thing. Listen up carefully people, I'm coming to a close right now. Here's the crazy thing. The crazy thing is that Jesus Christ says the same thing about us, His church. We are the object of His attention and affection. And He says the same thing. He says that there is no flaw in us. 
We, the motley crew of broken people, sexually broken people, and Jesus looks at us and He loves us and He says, I have made you blameless and I made you righteous. There is no flaw in you. Now you wonder how He could say that. Because we don't believe that of ourselves. Well, He could say that with authority and with love because He Himself took the painful steps to make us clean. People, it, was, it wasn't cheap for him. It, was, it cost him to make us clean. He, we have dirtied ourselves in every possible way, but he comes and he cleanses us. How does he do that? He died in our place. He took our punishment that belongs to us. He washed us with the blood so that He could present us. The whole purpose is to present us before God the Father without spot or wrinkle or blemish. And He says, there is no flaw in you. People, how beautiful is that? How loving is that? You know, it's, uh, it's like if, if, the, if the garden imagery in the Song of Songs points us to the Garden of Eden, you know, points us back to the Garden of Eden, it also points us forward to another garden the Garden of Gethsemane. At the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus knelt and He willingly drinks down the cup of God's judgment towards us. That, that cup of rope is meant for us. But He took it and He drank on our behalf and now He gives us the cup of God's grace and, 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 and cleanses us completely. This is the perfect one. This is the one who worshiped God and only God, unlike us who worship so many gods and pay the penalty of our sins when we have nothing, so that we are left with nothing more to pay. And then you go to Hebrews 12 and it says that he despised the shame. What that means is that he scorned the shame. He took the shame. It's a strong word. Like he stripped all the shame off us so that we might have His grace. People in the gospel, the sexually broken, can become sexually restored. And Jesus says, I am making all things new. That's how the Bible ends. All things. In the gospel, the sexually broken person becomes whole again. In the gospel, the sexually broken person is no less righteous than the woman who has stayed a virgin all her life and who has not committed a single sexual sin. That's what grace does. Grace restores and heals the sexually broken. Grace does that. God is recreating you and He's inviting you back into the garden, back into a freedom. It's an experience of God's grace which is, which is just greater than any sin that you've committed or any sin that has been committed against you. So single or married, what you need is to receive this grace by faith. And how do you do that? Take hold of the gospel, people. The wonder, the beauty, the majesty of the gospel. It is grace that will bring about that healing for you to your sexual brokenness. You see, the antidote to all brokenness is these three things. Theology, worship, grace. Right thinking about God, right worship about, of that God, and the experience of the grace of that God. That's the antidote for all healing, all brokenness, whatever it is. So people, I don't know what your sexual brokenness is. I don't know what you're walking in. It may be same-sex attraction. 
It may be some sexual sin. It could be some struggles that you have in your marriage. It could be an abortion in your past that is still haunting you with guilt. I don't know what sort of a sexual brokenness you're walking in, but here's what I know. I know that Jesus is saying, Behold, I am making all things new. All I know is that His grace is greater than any of the brokenness that you're walking in. Now, I know that in the gospel, there is just so much hope. When you are determined to open your heart to the gospel, and when you seek the Holy Spirit to reveal its beauty and wonder to you, to the degree the gospel of Jesus Christ grips you people, to that degree, you will find your healing for your sexual brokenness. Therefore, don't you dare take the gospel lightly. Please don't. That's why we need to preach the gospel to one another every day. That's the reason why we need to preach the gospel from the pulpit every Sunday. It is healing for our soul. Would you bow your heads with me? Let's pray. Our dear Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. Most of all, Lord, we thank you for everything that Christ has done for us. Father, he removed our shame. He despised it. He scorned it. He stripped us of all that shame, O oh God, that we may be made whole. And Father, we thank you for that grace, O oh Lord. We are undeserving as we are, Lord, of that grace. What we deserve for Father God is punishment and death. But you send your Son to make us whole, to give us life, and to heal us from our past, O oh God. And Father, may your Holy Spirit come and reconstruct our lives again, that we will not, O oh Father God, walk in, in the wilderness, in the deserts, Lord, of sexual guilt and sexual shame, but we may enter into the fullness of your grace, O oh God. So Father, help us, O oh Father God, to renew our theology of you, our understanding of you. Lord, help us, O oh Father God, Lord, to walk in the grace that you have given to us. And heal us, O oh Lord, we pray. And for that, O oh God, we thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to this sermon podcast. You can find more of our sermons online on our website at www.agape.org.sg.